0: It's really tough right now. I've been in complaint handling about, what, 10 years now? I would say in general, there is much more anger, much more fear, much more um, aggression sometimes, and equally much more despair in the outside world through a number of things, partly through, you know, the pandemic, partly through all sorts of things that are going on in the world, you know, the affordability squeeze that we've got coming up and so on and the teams that we work with at the energy or telecoms or parking companies who we work with have the same thing. Frontline service right now is really tough because you are facing into an understandably a frightened and at times angry and aggressive public.
1: Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist, the podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Matt Vickers, Chief Executive and Chief Ombudsman of Ombudsman Services. Matt and I discuss the role that frontline execution plays in purpose, what it takes to build trust in the system, and why that's important to us all. He shares what an ombudsman really does and how he came to be one. He also describes how they're going beyond resolving consumer conflicts to helping companies avoid them in the first place. Uh, Well, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. You are Matt Vickers. You're the chief executive and chief ombudsman, not a title I've come across before. I know, it's it's the longest business card in history. (laughs) at ombudsman services. So we've got a lot of the word ombudsman in there. It'd be really great to understand a little bit more, you know, what does an ombudsman do? What does the organisation do? And kind of how did you end up there? How do you see your role there? Okay.
0: Well, it's really interesting time to be talking about this because we're going through a lot of changes as an organisation at the moment. So I guess maybe, yeah, starting out with that bit about what's an ombudsman, what's it about? The idea of an ombudsman, I mean it goes way back to you know some people say it goes back to ancient Egypt and some people say it goes back to Scandinavian ideas of you know civil justice and so on but look in in the modern world what's it really about in our case ombudsman services is the UK's telecoms and energy ombudsman and what that means is if you're a consumer or you're a micro business so you've got fewer than about 8 employees um and you find yourself in a dispute with your energy company or your telecoms company you can come to us um, and we will make a legally binding decision when you're in dispute about effectively, you know, who's right, who's wrong and what happens as a result. The idea of the service is we're free for the consumer or the microbusiness that brings us the complaint. In effect, we get funded by the companies who, when there's a complaint against them, they have to pay us a case fee to deal with that complaint. And really the idea is it's about saying, how can you make sure that consumers are being treated fairly How can you make sure that the right regulations are being followed? And ultimately, how do you build a bit more trust in the system? And I'll maybe come on to that a bit later, because that's really helped us to kind of rethink what we're all about. So that in brief is kind of what's an ombudsman there for. I suppose the start of an ombudsman originally was it's a kind of form of administrative justice, a form of civil justice. It's meant to be much less formal than a court, much quicker than a court and so on. The bit about how I got here, wow so i've been at ombudsman services since 2015 originally i'm actually a history academic i always wanted to be a historian as a kid so rather than astronaut i always wanted to be a historian and kind of you know went and did research and did all of that stuff and i got to the point in my early 20s where i suddenly realized well hang on actually becoming a history academic and being able to eat something's going to have to give (laughs) Um, so i ended up getting a job with safeway the supermarkets i joined them on a graduate scheme, breaking open bin bags on the deli going, I wonder if we've wasted too much stuff. So I had a lot of background in kind of concepts and intellectual pursuits. But what retail made you do was come right down into, yeah, well, that's all very good. But how do you execute? What's it like on the shop floor? How do things actually work? So I I worked for Safeway for five years. And then I went and worked for a company called McCurric. So when we had uh, David on the podcast, David Smollen a few weeks back, McCurrick effectively did the same thing that that, that, that Smollen did. McCurrick was all about how do you sell more. It was about in-store retail execution. And again, this is kind of a theme I think we'll come back to because I think this really relates to purpose. I didn't know it at the time. What McCurrick was about was back then, so this was, say, early 2000s, if you think about businesses like Tesco, Tesco back then I think it was at the point where they said £1 in every seven that was being spent on the high street in the UK was spent with Tesco. They were massive, massive business. But if you were there, say, working for Nestle or Unilever or Heineken or one of these businesses, what you agreed at head office didn't get executed 100% in stores. It never does. Even with a great retailer like Tesco, you were doing well if your execution was about 80%. That's good. That's good. And what McCurrick's model was was by effectively sending people into stores to help with execution, could you get that execution up from eighty percent to ninety or ninety five? Because you'll never get a hundred. But just for clarity, what's being executed? What's being done? So say Heineken or iron brew because that was another one of the the products i did you might have an agreement at head office that said right we've got this promotion that's going to run on these dates and the product will be put down the middle aisle and there'll be this number of off-shelf displays or whatever and you'd have that agreed now i know from having worked in retail at the other end When you're there as a buyer and you're in trading, you're all talking big, highfalutin stuff about category visions. You're talking about what you're doing to increase penetration and, you know, average basket spend, et cetera, et cetera. The reality of when you're in a store is all that stuff about brand just flies out your head. You're not thinking about that when you're running a store. You're just thinking about how to keep my checkouts running, how to make sure my waste, I'm not getting too much stuff that's thrown in the bin. Are the shoplifters in the store? Is my back store working? Brand just doesn't even come into your head when you're running a store. It's very different. So execution in store would be the things that you'd paid to happen at head office don't happen in store because so much of retail comes down to really, really small decisions. Like the guy who's stacking the shelf takes out the wrong soup. So he brings out Campbell's chicken rather than Campbell's tomato. Now, what's he going to do? Does he fill the shelf with the chicken? Or does he take the extra effort, go back and get the tomato and put the right product? And small things like that can lead to, they have ripple effects. So you can then end up with poor availability of your product, poor promotional execution, all of these things. So that was really what McCurrock was about. It was about saying, how do you improve that execution? Because the return on investment, if you're one of those big brands, you've paid for your TV, you've paid for your logistics, you've paid for your marketing. If you can just get that 10% extra execution, the return on that is fantastic because the other costs are paid for. So the McCurrick business model was, how do we improve execution? Even when you're best in class, how do you improve that execution? Because there's a big value in that. So I was at McCurrick for seven years and, as I say, worked with all sorts of brands there. And McCurrick was going at the time for an AIM flotation and then the crisis happened 2008, 2009. And I effectively got made redundant. And I saw a job advert for British Consul in the Canary Islands. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. Because I you know, studied Spanish for years at, at school or whatever. But I thought, there's no way I could ever do it. I couldn't be British Consul in Canary. Me, now. And the more I looked at it, I realized that it was really a customer service job it was about the consular part of foreign office work is actually the bit that for most people means something. So again, it's this kind of interesting interplay between the big picture kind of conceptual, intellectual, bright, shiny stuff, and the reality of what's on the ground. So it's changed a little bit now with Brexit and a little bit with climate change diplomacy, but certainly if you went back, say, 10, 12 years, the public weren't that interested in diplomacy in that big sense what they're really interested in is look if i go abroad and i get mugged or i lose my passport or i happen to have moved out there to live because i was based in spain there were thousands like hundreds of thousands of brits who lived in spain how do i access my health care or you know we moved out there and sadly my partner's now died and i don't speak the language and i'm, I'm isolated it was all of that kind of stuff So I realized quite quickly looking at this job, hang on, this is really a customer service and leadership job. It's how do you gather teams around what you're doing? How do you go and deliver public service? So for me, that was a step out of the private sector into public service. And I did four years in all with the Foreign Office. So two years in Tenerife and the wider Canary Islands, and then two years in Madrid. But the way the Foreign Office was back then, well, I think it still is like this now, it's almost like two tiers. You either join as a UK-based civil servant, in which case you travel around the world every few years and you can become an ambassador at some point or whatever, or you're like I was, locally engaged. And what that meant was you could go into a relatively pretty senior job, but because you weren't a UK-based civil servant, you didn't move all around the globe. If you'd reach a glass ceiling, you couldn't get any higher than a particular level. So by that point, we'd had a family. Our oldest son was actually born in the Canary Islands, which he's very proud of. You know, he loves describing himself as Spanish and all that. And we were looking for, you know, move back to Scotland. And I spotted a job, the Scottish Legal Complaints Commission, which effectively is Scotland's legal ombudsman. I didn't know anything about ombudsman. I didn't know anything about what they did. But again, I'd seen this and it was really dealing with complaints about the legal profession in Scotland. So I moved back and became the chief exec of the SLCC, spent three, four years there, and then joined Ombudsman Services. So I guess the, all of that long kind of uh, wander around there, it gives you an idea about, you know, some of the themes that come out of it are quite an unusual background. So I've done private, public, and not-for-profit sector it's funny, a lot of these things that struck me listening to some of these podcasts, we're all very good at kind of building logic in retrospect, aren't we? When you listen, or certainly when I listen to these, I think, oh my God, I wish I'd planned and thought and structured things as well as all these people I'm listening to. And in fact, I think, you know, usually lots of things make sense when you look back rather than when you're in them. So with the benefit of hindsight, if I look at, you know, what was my obvious career path that this was all leading to, the common themes are execution. Execution. And the importance of execution, and where's the value out of execution? Because it's one thing having intent or purpose, it's another thing being able to execute it. And I think that at times there's too much focus on the kind of ethereal holy world of intent and going, well, if we just moralize harder and, you know, uh, kind of feel harder or emote harder on intent, then we'll somehow be better people, better businesses. That, for me, has been very much tempered by a reality about, yeah, but remember, even when you're delivering for a commercial purpose with a company as good as Tesco, execution is really tough to do. So, for me, it's a theme around execution. It's a theme around customer service, I guess. The other thing it's given me is, because I haven't had a linear career, I kind of maybe can tend to bring some things sometimes about looking at things a little bit sideways or a little bit curious.
1: The thing that strikes me about your kind of career arc, if I could use that term, is you're very willing, it seems, to leap into some area that you don't know yet, but you can draw the parallels from things you've done before and then kind of bring something from that into the new role.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I find it, you know, one, I find it energizing, but two, I think it does. It kind of throws up different perspectives sometimes. And it's interesting to see, you know, how often, uh, right across everything that we do, you know, so much of the time we can get caught in our silos. And I guess that's one of the big trends at the moment is how do you break out of silos? Mm, mm.
1: We're going to talk about purpose. We're going to talk about strategy. I suspect, given what you said, we're going to talk about execution. If you think about organizational purpose, how do you define it? You know, what is it? How is it different if it is from mission or vision?
0: I have to say... I'm not a big believer in spending loads of time about what's the difference between a purpose and mission. It's kind of like, look, you know what it is when you see it. So broadly, if I was trying to define what is it, it's saying, why do you exist? You know, what are you there to do? And in some cases, it can be a bit more defined for you. And and in some cases, a bit less and you have to work it out for yourself. I found through my career, whether it's as an exec or as a non-exec, one of the most difficult challenges I have is, how to stop the mission and purpose from expanding all the time. When you get tied into a sense of purpose and that feeling about how you're going to make the world a better place, unless you're careful, you can end up with it just expands, 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 and then you start putting at risk that other strand that you know we've talked about already or about execution. So purpose, I guess, bringing it back to that is saying it's got to be a realistic or some kind of bounded view of going, Right. What's the maximum impact we can have to do good in this place at this time with this set of resources? So it's not just an intent. I think it also has an element of going, where's the executional realism? It can't just be, and it's taken me a long time, I guess, to realise this, it can't just be this kind of powerful, but ultimately at times quite dangerous view of, you know, well, it's just going out and doing good in the world, because that could lead you to overreach, to arrogance, to all sorts of challenges.
1: Mm -hmm. So given that, do you see purpose as something that's sort of fixed? Or that it actually needs to change as circumstances
0: change? I think it does need to change as circumstances change. I mean, I think there'll be a kernel of it that stays the same. So if I think about, you know, where we are as a business at the moment and what we're looking at doing, traditionally what we're ombudsman about, well, it was this kind of administrative justice type thing. You know, how do you decide who's right, who's wrong, what are you doing about it? I think over time we've realized, no, hang on, really what we're about is we're much more about trust. And the importance of trust in the modern world in all kinds of things is so important. So rather than looking at just saying, well, how to put things right after the event, how do we start to make it more about cultural and behavioral change, not just about administrative justice? How do we make it about capability and execution? How do we make sure that the companies that we work with and the sectors that we're in engage with, think about, And mobilize around translating generally what I think is a good set of intent. You know, very few businesses these days can afford not to have a good intent. The bit that they struggle with is how does that show up? How do I get from the Bodleian Library to Delhi bin bags? Um, That's something that people can struggle with at times. Sort of the flavor I'm getting.
1: It's not companies trying to be bad and get away with something, it's probably more often some problem glitch in their own execution of what's probably meant to be, broadly, a generally good
0: thing. And we're now trying to help them address that. I would say so. I mean, it's interesting. You know, consumers misunderstand what we do. They think we're there as a consumer champion. We're not. We're here as an independent, impartial organisation that makes binding decisions. I think the really exciting bit about where's the impact, how can we fulfil that purpose, takes us much more into going, do you know what, How can we help businesses to improve their execution? You know, we have this little phrase kind of intent plus execution equals outcome. And there's so much focus on ESG, for example, around the intent side. And I think that's one of the risks at the moment where you can almost get this kind of, you know, performative goodness that we all see on social media or whatever that bit's easy. The bit about going, oh, I'm a good person because I have good thoughts, or I'm a good business because I have good thoughts and I have good intent, doesn't matter. And that's what I learned in retail. It doesn't matter until it's the last nine yards of, yeah, but how do you get the product on the shelf? Yeah, but how do you translate your desire to do well for the more vulnerable members of society or to bring something to show up in the world? That means you've got to execute. And I think there's never been a time, it's never been more complicated. Um, partly because of digitization disruption market fragmentation you know when you think about it supply chains execution chains trust chains have never been more fragmented than they are now so the idea that you control that as a company you don't we're not looking at the old kind of public industries you know public sector kind of i own something vertically start to finish whatever that's not the nature of business models these days and that means in order to get trust as that outcome. There's got to be a lot more trust within the ecosystem, within the different bodies that are all looking to execute the different partnerships and so on. But there has to be much more focus on how does that show up for the end consumer? How does that show up and does it build? Because trust and fairness at the end of it, they're embodied. And and many people like myself who kind of come from that sort of very kind of intellectual background, where it can all get a little bit theoretical and a little bit kind of market models of economics or you can equally get lots of people who are vulnerability advocates and so on. And it can all come from that kind of well-meaning but slightly woolly place of, you know, how do we do good and whatever. And the hard nose part is, it all sounds great, but it's embodied. You know, it's got to be executed. When you say embodied, it sounds like there is some additional
1: sort of meaning to it beyond just physically done by a body.
0: Yeah, I guess what it means is I think sometimes there's kind of this split You know, in many places, you go, why is it that when you go right down to the front line and you say to colleagues on the front line, what is it that matters to them and what are they trying to do? I often find that it's almost the same as when you go right up to the top of the organization and something weird happens in the middle that says, well, why is there this split that acts almost like a barrier between the two? And in organizations that I've been in, all execution, whether it's been about getting baked beans on a shelf, Or it's been about making sure that someone's treated fairly around their energy bill or around, you know, their broadband or around social inclusion. It's always been about how do you break through that kind of middle layer, how do you break through the gloop? Because that's not easy. Hmm.
1: It sounds like part of what you're thinking now about the purpose of the organization is it's almost helping the companies that pay you helping them sort of understand what's going on in their middle level and how it's showing up in the interaction with their customers.
0: Absolutely, it's about them and about being humble as we do that because look we have the same challenges as well. Anytime you're trying to execute you will always have those challenges. But our role is yes on the one hand as an ombudsman, you know, our heritage has been that administrative justice who's right, who's wrong, make binding decisions, report stuff to the regulator if you have to. We sit on a whole load of data, a whole load of executional insights, a whole load of potentially kind of behavioral and emotional insights that could be useful in helping companies to dive through the relevant bits of the ocean to get to the treasure at the bottom of saying, you know, how do I really build that trust, that embodied trust, that brought to life felt trust that we depend on not just economically but you know if you think about the importance of trust in how we're going to make the big transitions we have to as a society to net zero or you know this this is really important stuff but I I think what our organization does it kind of sits a bit in both worlds can understand that world of regulation and unlike say a regulator our job is we have a 24-7 window on execution. And I think one of the other things that I have found really interesting, bringing it down to the energy sector in particular, we see this a bit in the comms sector, but we see this very much in the energy sector, is somehow execution has now acquired this kind of moral dimension. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I think about it back in the old days when I was working in, you know, in Safeway in Edinburgh, if we didn't have a loaf of bread, if we had poor availability or we had a uh, promotion that wasn't set up the way it was, Yeah, that was bad. Yeah, we would lose sales off it. Yeah, we would end up with disappointed customers. But we didn't end up with people walking away thinking we were evil managers or thinking somehow there was a kind of moral dimension about, you know, we were rip off or we were this or we were that. Somehow in some sectors, and I think energy is one of them, Questions of competence become questions of character. It does become this point about, you know, it's not just your execution's bad. People then start ascribing motives to that that maybe weren't there. I think that's one of the real risks about, you know, certain sectors of the economy. More often than not, more regulated sectors where execution really, really matters because you're dealing with an essential service where there aren't really any alternatives, and that brings with it a kind of different dimension. One of the other things I hear is you're
1: consciously and deliberately taking what I describe as a systemic view. You're not just sort of looking at transaction by transaction. Absolutely, yeah. Two parties in their tussle. yeah. How's this affecting everything? How's this affecting the way people feel about their interactions with regulated businesses, the capability of those regulated
0: businesses. You know, you're sort of looking broader than just the transaction itself. There is no such thing as trust. There is no such thing as fairness until it's embodied in people, until it's embodied in individual transactions. You know, I heard something the other day where a regulator was talking about edge cases. And there's a part of me that just kind of really rebels against that for a minute and goes, hang on, I get what you mean, edge cases, but they're not edge cases. These are people. Not only are they people, but more likely than not, they're probably the most vulnerable people because they don't fit. The reason why execution gets difficult is when you've got anything that doesn't quite fit. Now, a lot of the problems of vulnerability and social justice and so on come from the fact that things don't quite fit. So... Uh, Going back to where you were defining it before, yes, but I think we've got to be realistic about, you know, if we're only ever systemic, we lose sight of people, we lose sight of embodied, we lose sight of trust as an emotion, something that we all feel. So, Matt, one theme I hear through everything you've said, your whole
1: career, what you're talking about now, is this kind of need to connect the big picture, the systemic view, all that sort of stuff, the broad intent down to the embodied instance of it all, the execution, and somehow keep both of those in sight at the same time. How, organizationally, personally, how have you come about identifying, developing this purpose? And,
0: you know, was it something you invented or you discovered? How did all that happen? We help thousands of people every year with individual problems. So we always knew that there was a challenge in here, which is, well, how come, that in the sectors that we work in, consumers aren't getting what they need, you know, don't end up getting fair treatment sometimes. So that was a real clue at the start about, well, where would we go with it? And I think that quite naturally then gets you into a world of, you know, once you start dealing with these hundreds and thousands of times, the team would start to see patterns. You know, you can see patterns in your own data as you start to capture it that say, well, hang on, we're coming up with the same things over and over again, We're appointed by Ofgem in Energy and Ofcom in Telecoms. And we had a review of ourselves that was done. So couldn't say that all of this came from within the organization. We'd have a review done externally that said, guys, you're doing a great job of dealing with individual complaints. I mean, we'd gone from taking, what, about 14,000 individual complaints a year up to 50,000 virtually overnight. And that was a real headache for the business because we went from being a kind of 70-person business to being a... At one stage, almost 700-person business virtually overnight, and that's really tough. But what that review had done was it said, kind of, look, you know, you've done a good job of dealing with all of the aches and pains of that, but are you really looking at some of the root causes? So naturally, you know, in the business world, there's a lot of focus on root cause, a lot of focus on efficiency. So some of it came from from that kind of strand. I think the thing that's really shifted it for us in the last few years now is probably more of that focus on trust around saying, well, hang on, if what we're trying to do is build trust, let's recognize that the ombudsman is one way of doing it, but it's not the only way of doing it. And that we've got a set of assets that we already have that we might be able to use in different ways. And this is where Simon Palmer, who's the managing director who, who joined me what, four years back, has been really, really helpful on this because what Simon's done is helped to shape the purpose a lot around going, you know, that risk that I've talked about before, unless you're careful, you can then go, well, the answer to everything is its Ombudsman Services saves the world and does everything. And Simon's really helped with grounding that and going, no, hang on a minute, let's think about what assets we've got, where we're heading on, the problem that we're trying to solve. And that will then lead us to a, a bit more structured way of doing this. So, Broadly, our purpose and our strategy, where the two have come together, is to say, okay, to maximize our impact and reach, because we're a private not-for-profit business, so we're not all about kind of making money, but we are about maximizing reach and impact. What other ways are there that we could do that? So for us, the ways that we can do that are, well, we do it already for thousands of people through the ombudsman. We can do it better by taking data and insights and deploying them differently. So we're looking at how we develop that capability. There's another one. I mean, we've set up our own spin-off software house called Lumentech. You can use technology and platforms because, again, technology and platforms are other ways of increasing your reach. We're looking at some other things around design and assurance. So, you know, there's some acquisitions that we're looking at right now. That goes back to what I was talking a bit earlier about intent plus execution equals outcome. You know, how do we play on both sides? Sometimes it might be people want a bit of help with saying, how do I design and approach this? What ways are there that I might want to think about questions like inclusion, vulnerability, design? And some things that get you into execution about where's the last nine yards? What does that look like? So we found when we started out on this journey, we were kind of trying to do all of this as ombudsman services. And we're going to be becoming a a trust group because we found people don't know what an ombudsman is. It carries all sorts of baggage with it. And when we start thinking about the talent that we'll need to build those capabilities around data and tech, not a lot of that talent wants to come and work for an ombudsman, but a lot does if you start saying, well, do you want to come and work for a not-for-profit that's dealing with net zero, dealing with digital inclusion, that's doing that around trust and fairness? All of a sudden, that sounds pretty exciting. Ombudsman doesn't. But as well, it means as we start to reach into different parts of that execution chain, So we're finding that as we start to position ourselves as a group, it should open up our ability to take different offers to different customers, but all with that same purpose, with that same end in mind about how do we build consumer trust? How do we make sure that execution is fair, inclusive? How do we build that better world in our own way? Because that's still there, but how are we doing it with a bounded sense of purpose and with a realistic sense of execution? Once you start putting that together as a group, I think that's what makes us quite different. We've got, one, we're coming from a different place because we are still a not-for-profit, but two, we've got a really interesting and curious set of complementary but unusual capabilities that we can bring together in one place to help people execute.
1: So what's surprised you along the way
0: on this journey, particularly over the last you know, couple of years? The change in an organization and the change in the world has to start with changing you which sounds like a cliche but i've found that it's meant i've really had to think about what things i'm good at and what things i stopped doing as a leader and it's meant that i've had to move away from a kind of mental map that i've had that at times the risk is that podcasts like this can play into that says you have some kind of heroic chief exec who has it all mapped out or who works out a system or is the star of the show. So it's about kind of giving yourself the permission to not have to be that heroic single figure, you know, wrestling something into submission because it doesn't work that way. And that might be slightly less satisfying for your ego. It might mean you don't quite feel like the hero of your own story, but that's okay. And it's taken me a while to realise that. I suppose on the organizational level, you know, it's not all been plain sailing at all. We did some things at the start, like probably ran too hard, too fast down a digital transformation route without really thinking about what we did that was different and what we were here to do. I do still like concepts and ideas, so sometimes could make it a bit overcomplicated or go and try and boil the ocean, try and solve the whole of the world's ills in one place. Probably some things that I did that was like almost, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom on the base of, well, if we try lots of stuff, then maybe something will happen and it'll be that kind of intellectual fizz that you get out of, oh, look, there's all of these different things running around everywhere that can be hugely stimulating. But it's like setting a load of ball bearings loose on a table, it doesn't end well, you know. So, organizationally, um, where we've got much better is, I think, is structuring some of that, grounding it and making it a bit more realistic about what can be done where and I also think we've rediscovered about the importance of our own people and about engaging our own people and of course every business should be looking to execute for its customers but it's that point about you can't do that it's the old analogy that other people have used about put your own oxygen mask on first you know that that kind of thing I think we've done that much better in the last three, four years. And that's meant that our people have been able to do some really amazing stuff over the last two years, particularly through the pandemic, you know, when we went overnight working in a very different way. And I would say for anyone who does work in this kind of line of work, it's really tough right now. I've been in complaint handling about, what, 10 years now. I would say in general, there is much more anger, much more fear, much more um, aggression sometimes, and equally much more despair in the outside world through a number of things, partly through, you know, the pandemic, partly through all sorts of things that are going on in the world, you know, the affordability squeeze that we've got coming up and so on. And the teams that we work with at the energy or telecoms or parking companies who we work with have the same thing. Frontline service right now is really tough because you are facing into an understandably uh, frightened and at times angry and aggressive public. Now, if we're going to ask our colleagues to unlock some of those emotional insights, to understand behavior, to go that extra mile, you know, additional support and vulnerability, we have to recognize the impact that has on them because they themselves are living through, have lived through a pandemic where, okay, we've done our best to look after our people. And we've put lots of things around, you know, in terms of resilience and support and so on. But they're part of families that might not have that. So I think that's probably something that I guess we've kind of rediscovered that maybe we'd lost along the way. That was to say, if you really want to bring purpose to life, and if you really want to execute, then you've got to think really long and hard about yourselves and you know what are you doing about building that resilience and about building that support because it's really tough you know you can't expect people to do a lot of hard emotional labor because that's what complaint handling and, and this kind of work is a lot of the time unless you support them properly i mean i don't know if you've come across it, Belden, but the carnegie trust has done a lot of really interesting work on kindness and the kindness economy. You know, one of their ideas that I think is very true is if you're leaders like me or like most of the people that you've had on the podcast, you can easily fall into that kind of pontificating and you you, you get that kind of feeling good out of talking about, you know, what great work your organisation is doing or you get that kind of moral glow of feeling like you're serving or whatever. But many of the really, really difficult decisions that we're asking people to make in trade-offs are actually made at the front line. And they're made at the front line where at times it can feel like you don't have the resources or the support that people in my privileged position do have. And I think it's for us as leaders to recognize that if we think that execution is key to translating good feelings into good outcomes in the world, we have to recognize that that involves a very different way of leading and a very different way of supporting and empowering and enabling teams to do that while knowing that, you know, we've got their back. It's not easy because a lot of those hard trade-offs and that difficult emotional work happens at the front line. It's not me. It's not even the leadership team doing that. It's frontline execution work.
1: Matt, I wish we had lots more time to talk about this. I'd love to have you back, you know, at some stage I think you and I have talked about maybe doing something a bit more of a panel discussion, which I think would be really interesting. But thank you for that, particularly that sort of note about the way in which being serious about a purpose, translating the intent into execution means you've got to recognize the additional strain that that puts people under and you've got to find some way to support them. Really, I think some real words of wisdom there. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mankes.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.